they got an army together and invaded the Olympic Games during a wrestling match. And so this pitched battle started between the Pisans and the Alans. And the, um, the, the, the sports fans, to their credit, just got up on top of the temples and started watching and sort of applauding. So who's, <laughs> who is winning and who's doing, doing what? Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today, as the Tokyo Olympics enter their final week, I wanted to travel back more than 2,000 years into the past and take a look at the ancient Greek games that inspired the modern Olympics. The ancient games were actually a huge part of Greek culture and resembled a giant religious festival that attracted travelers from all over the ancient world. Athletes competed naked in sports like athletics and boxing and wrestling, but also chariot races in a sport that resembled mixed martial arts. The festival also attracted poetry slams and carnival entertainments and a giant prostitution industry complete with its own guidebooks. Herodotus debuted his famous history book as a PR stunt at the ancient games, and Plato was famously a big wrestling fan. And to learn more about the ancient Greek games, I invited history and travel writer Tony Perite onto the podcast. I first learned of Tony through a book called Pagan Holiday, which is about tourism in ancient Rome. His book about the ancient Greek games is called The Naked Olympics, and it's a great primer for learning about what the original games were like. Together, Tony and I talk about why Greece was such a competitive culture and how the games featured no shortage of trash talking. We talk about how the marathon and the torch lighting ceremony were not a part of the ancient games. I start by comparing incidents from the ancient games to recent disruptions in the modern Olympics and to the Tokyo Olympics in particular. Let's listen in. So Tony, the uh, the Japan Olympics were delayed by a year, and it's not the first time that the Olympics have been disrupted. In 1916, World War One disrupted the Olympics, and also in 1940 and 1944. Um, you're sort of an expert on the ancient Greek Olympics. What, did plague or disaster or war ever delay the ancient Greek Olympics? You know, never once. They were they went for uh, nearly 1,200 years. Uh, every four years, uh, with, uh, in the summer, uh, without fail. It's kind of a extraordinary uh, record, really. They just um, it was it was a very important religious event. So the idea of cancelling it or changing it uh, never came, never crossed anyone's minds. Am I correct that it was a five day event? Uh, it started off as a with one in 776 BC, you know, back in the you know, the darkest antiquity. It started with a single event. Huh. Uh, there was a 200 yard foot race, and it was won by a cook named Coroebus. Huh. And that's about all we know about those games. I mean, the, 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 the thing that we have to realize is that there were games in every, every city around uh, Greece. You know, there was like several hundred city-states, mm -hmm. and they all had games. There were like four really top ones, at Demir and Delphi and whatever. But then the, 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 the most famous of all was the Olympic Games because that was dedicated to Zeus. So it start, probably started as sort of a religious ritual, and uh, the Greeks saw sports and athletics as a sort of a, a act of devotion to the gods. And how far did people travel to go to these Olympic events? I mean, um, they came from Athens. You know, you walk 300 miles from Athens, trudging, you know, take about 10 days. But as they became more more famous, you know, around the classical area, about, you know, 4th century BC, uh, all the Greek colonies over in Asia Minor, today's Turkey, they would send uh, people over. You know, the Greeks had colonized all around the Mediterranean. So you'd get uh, competitors from Spain, from um uh, you know, the south of France, from Italy, you know, this is hmm. in Sicily, there was a, it was, you know, like it was called Little Greece. So uh, everyone, you know, it, and it would take, it was a major project. You would be, like, be you know, schlepping for, for weeks sometimes. 
Well, one thing that I learned from your book is that it's more, as much pageantry as is attached to the modern Olympic Games, it really doesn't hold a candle to the ancient Greek Games. You sort of, just, you compared it to like the uh, the Hindu pilgrimage to Varanasi, the Hajj to Mecca for Muslims. You talked about it. You sort of made it seem like it was Mardi Gras combined with Disneyland, and you called it, quote, the ultimate pagan entertainment package. So what besides sports happened at the Olympics in ancient Greece? Well, almost everything you can think of. It was sort of like... Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's very hard for us to grasp you know, the, the religious significance, these amazing rituals. There'd be like uh, sacrifices of animals. There'd be like oaths in front of um, you know, uh, enormous statues of Zeus. There'd be sightseeing as well because the sanctuary of Olympia was quite remote, but it was uh, it had these gorgeous temples and these, these shrines everywhere. So, And the temples were, were like museums. You'd go in there and you'd see the, the most famous artworks, Phidias' sculpture of Zeus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, but all sorts of extraordinary things. You'd find, um, you know, they, they would put dinosaur bones in as well, which they, uh, the Greeks thought were evidence of the titans that had mm. once walked the earth. Um, so there was that. But, and then there was like uh, uh, every sort of Coney Island sort of carnival-esque uh, attraction. You know, there's 40,000 people who are stuck in this sort of place there's, without any hotels. There's one one for VIPs, but everyone else is just camping out. Hmm. So everyone's just hanging out. There's vendors going around selling food. There's uh, there's orators standing up on their soapboxes, like uh, trying to convince people of one thing or another. Uh, historians and, and writers would come there to debut their works because they knew the most influential and the richest and the, uh, the smartest Greeks were all there as well. Herodotus is the most famous writer who turned up and he he was working on uh, the histories and he thought he'd uh, test out his material uh, because the smartest and the richest and the uh, most influential Greeks were all in one spot. So he does this reading and everyone's so astonished by it that his fame spread throughout the Greek world. Everyone, all, the, all the travelers and the sports fans then went back and started to sing the praises of Herodotus. So was, he, his, his book became an effective bestseller uh, with this little PR, his father of PR as well as the father so, of history. So that was like the first, it's often been said that Herodotus was the world's first travel writer. So that was like the first travel book tour, maybe, you know. Yes, yes, it went... Uh, uh, yeah, an e excellent PR, just um, a stroke of genius. But uh, but all but yeah, I mean, there's art appreciation. There's like a sacred guides going around showing people the uh, the art artworks, and often with uh, kind of dodgy uh, spiels. You know, there was this, this saying that uh, Zeus protects me from your, your your guides at Olympia, and Athena your guides from Athens, because they would often get the material wrong. They're very pushy. They come up like you know trying to get money out of people to to show them around. Um, so things hadn't changed that much. And yeah, so these were the Ex, how do you say that? Exegeti? Ex yeah, yeah, I think ex, ex, I, I go with exegeti, but I think you know, it's in ancient Greek. No one really knows how to pronounce it. So, uh, but uh, well, it has the uh, same. Okay. It sounds like exegesis, like they like they hold forth. So like basically, yeah. the, the tour guides of ancient Greece, and it sounds like they weren't always very honest. Yeah, they were. Um, they were notorious for uh, ripping people off and uh, just getting their stuff wrong. Huh. You know, and so like Pausanias is the great um, uh, guidebook writer uh, who came, who came uh, in more or less the second century AD uh, when the Romans were basically running um, running the show. But he wrote a guidebook, and he's always bitching about the um, 
you know, the, the guides who are just like getting them, you know, getting, their, getting their facts wrong, getting their, you know, and you, and you can't shut them up. That's another thing. They're like huh. rattling away and they're getting it wrong and that drives Pausanias nuts, you know, because he wants to make sure that, you know, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the legendary references are correct, the, um, hmm. the, the, the stories behind all this. Um, but also, I mean, um, you know, this is a, the sports fans, they, they were also, you know, they were, it was, Almost all men who who went there. It was only only men and unmarried women were allowed to go, uh, and it ended up they, 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 like prostitutes from all around um, the Greek world would also turn up because they could make as much, you know, in five days as they could in a year uh, otherwise. So um, was there little, a prostitute district or uh, little, little makeshift? Everyone was like staying in sort of tents, so they would set up prostitute tents, mm-hmm. uh, which were called kinetaria. Um, which one historian helpfully translates as fuck factories. <laughs> uh, they were you know, they were sort of like you could go in and it was like they were, they were the more budget option. You could go in and the, and the girls would stand around in a semicircle and sing softly in translucent uh, tunics. Uh, and you would there, there are sex manuals that have uh, survived as well. And they give uh, uh, guides on the, the, the prices depending on the sexual position as well, um, which is. Fascinating reading. Um, there's one of the, most of them are fairly um, fairly explicable. Um, uh, Kubda being translated as bent over. Mm. Uh, Keles was the racehorse. Uh, another one was um, uh, the, the only translation anyone's been able to come up with is the lion and the cheese grater. <laughs> the lion and the cheese grater, and that um, doesn't sound particularly comfortable for anyone involved. So it's, it's like the ancient Greek Kama Sutra. I'm surprised this was so well documented. Yeah, I mean, so few of the Greek things have survived. The, the most famous ones have disappeared. I mean, only a fraction of like the works of Aristotle and, and Sophocles have survived as well. Hmm. Uh, so there's this, they tend to be in fragments. Often you can often find these things embedded in other texts. You know, so people have been, you know, Pliny the Pliny the Elder or whatever in his encyclopedia might be referring to things, and you sort of like you can piece it together from there. But um, yeah, one of the sex manuals did survive. Now this was this happened in Olympia, and you you sort of described it as remote. Can you orient us and sort of give us a sense for what was happening when forty thousand people converge on this fairly remote part of Greece? Yeah, well, I mean, most people, if you know where Athens is, you sort of like it goes south uh, across the isthmus into the Peloponnese, uh, Peloponnesus, which is sort of this giant bulbous thing that hangs off uh, the south of Greece. Uh, so it's almost like a giant island. But it's very mountainous, very beautiful, uh, sort of eerie. And uh, if you were heading from uh, Athens, you would trudge 300 miles along the, uh, the not very good roads uh, before the Roman times. And uh, you'd go through Arcadia, which is, just, as the name suggests, it, it gave us the name Arcadian. It, was, it mm. is a very beautiful and remote and um, uh, dreamy sort of uh, place, as well as quite wild uh, storms and uh, you know it was actually sort of slightly feared uh, there's a sort of a dark edge to Arcadia uh, in Greek mythology but um, uh, Olympia is in this beautiful glade this sort of valley and by the river Alpheus and uh, very very verdant very sort of um, it, you know all, all the places that the Greeks chose have excellent feng shui you know you go sort of go like uh, if you go to uh like delphi or whatever they, they were able to you know wherever they built their temples wherever they uh wherever they created a city it was an extraordinarily you know, beautiful use of light the use of the, the landscape so olympia uh you know is is surrounded by the low hills and um you know it's it's 
almost a natural uh, amphitheater, which was uh, came in handy because they, um, there were no seats. The st- stadium comes from the Greek word stadion, which is um, to stand. Hmm. Uh, so uh, they had a sort of there was they would then build a there's a running track there that um, is still uh, you can still visit. Uh, and then there was a hippodrome where they would do the chariot races, and um, everyone just basically camped by the um, uh, the banks of the Alpheus. And this being in the height of summer, uh, it was almost always dry. So uh, people would suffer from dehydration. There'd be you know people arguments about getting you know water shipped in. Uh, people there were often there were often deaths from people who were overexposed uh, from the heat. Um, the spectators had to be a pretty tough bunch. So uh, I'm not sure what that what they would make of people not going to uh, uh, to Tokyo just because the, you know some huh. small disease. Now, now, how did news get out? I mean, obviously, this was before the smartphone or even the newspaper era. How did um, how was how were these events promoted, and uh, how were the specifics of you know travel details and sporting details communicated? Well, uh, it was always run by this one uh, city, a uh, very small little place, uh, Elias, and so they basically, you know, which was a huge advantage for the Greeks, you know, instead of moving around from one city to the next, you're creating all these huge logistical problems. I mean, to rebuild, you know, these giant stadiums everywhere. Hmm. They just used the same place for, you know, basically for 1,200 years. So that much was easier. Like a, a year before, uh, runners would be sent out around the Greek world to sort of just to confirm that it's all going on and, um, you know, for everyone to get their acts together. And um, so the and the athletes would start training like ten months before, and then they would they would all sort of converge on Olympia a month before, and they would stay in what was sort of a prototype Olympic village, all training together, hmm. um, which is kind of a, a strange thing. Um, so we, you know, and so spectators just had to figure it out by themselves. You know, so the wealthy ones would you know eventually you know the wealthy Romans would have their own sort of little caravan, so they could set up. It'd be like Burning Man, I guess. You know. Huh. <laughs> There's the billionaires who've got their like amazing sort of like uh, setups, you know, with slaves and uh, their own courtesans. This, you know, the, the, these, these, are, you know, the, the really sort of upper, uh, high class call girls, I guess, like the geisha girls uh, of antiquity, and they bring their own groups around. Um, beautiful food, um, no, no problem, with, you know, excellent wines and whatever. But, but most people would just turn up and sort of either sleep on the ground or have their sort of makeshift tents. I mean, Plato. Um, was a great sports fan, and he would go quite regularly. He was Plato, and even means broad shoulders. He was a big wrestling fan, and so he would turn up incognito. So he would sleep, you know, with these snoring strangers, and uh, just like get into the games. And then he'd invite them back to come come visit him in Athens, and they would turn up and be somewhat amazed that he's like this legendary philosopher and revered in Athens. So it's sort of a uh, networking type uh, event. Yeah, I mean, but it was so important. It was like uh, everyone. I mean, time, years, you know, eras were 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 measured by Olympiads. Hmm. So instead of like sixty seven BC, it would be like the year of the you know the hundred and first Olympiad or whatever. Or then the year after would be the year after the hundred and first Olympiad. It's like very um, you know that's how history was arranged. It was it was that important. So it was there was never really a question of like you know. Uh, you got to remind people the Olympic Games are on. Huh. Everyone was very conscious of that. Well, I want to get to the sports specifically, but there's a few other matters of spectacle I'm curious about. Um, you mentioned that there were some strong men who were sort of like the equivalent of 
pro- professional wrestlers? Well, I use the, the, the analogy because um, they just allowed to show off. Uh, they in, didn't in compete. Sort of, you know, and not necessarily, you know, mm-hmm. they might have been victors from past games, you know, but they'll come dressed as Hercules and they'll do things, you know, do these amazing sort of, I mean, the competitors would do that as well to show off. They were like, you know, lift, you know, four men on their shoulders or they would sort of tear down trees or, um, uh, you know, just anything to impress impress people or uh, acts of gluttony as well. I mean, it, being able to eat a whole boar or something is, uh, <laughs> you know, which d- doesn't sound exactly a uh, great training just before your, uh, before your match, but they were very, um, everyone was strutting around, uh, you know, they, and, oh, and the athletes were all naked, of course, um, which is why my book was called the naked Olympics. It mm. was, uh, uh, they would sort of, yeah, all, always naked and sort of like they would, um, cover themselves in sort of fine olive oil and be sort of dripping from their hair and um, often with sort of like powders, colored powders on, on, the, on their bodies. So there was a gleefully superficial and competitive sort of uh, uh, experience. So everyone was into the spectacle of that. You know, it was kind of like, wow. You know, you know then they would know, you know the most famous athletes by name and things like that. It was, uh, um, you know, just a, just a marvelous uh, thing to, to watch, I believe. Well, you mention in the book that there's also symposia. And of course, when we hear the word symposia, you think like a, a university event with some scholars giving lectures. But symposia were a little bit different in ancient Greek, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, wine was a very big uh, element. And you would, uh, it was very social. They had a thing called a crater, which was a big sort of um, uh, giant, like a giant wine glass. And everyone would share the crater and they'd go around and um, uh, and as everyone would get drunker and drunker. And so the, the uh, you know, the, the erudite uh, conversation. I think that there's a poem that goes like that. You know, the the, the first crater is given to, to thought, the second to uh, debate, and then by you get to the sixth, it's like uh, then it gets to uh, to arguments, then it gets to um, to brawls, and then the last one is to bile as everyone's <laughs> out there vomiting. So there's a very uh, there is a parallel like uh, philosophy was almost like a drinking game or something back then. Yeah, the, yeah, it's a bit of a Monty Python uh, situation. Um, what was it? What's the, the Monty Python song? Aristotle was a sucker for the bottle. What kind of souvenirs could could travelers who came to the, the Olympics purchase when they were at the games? Oh, there are all sorts of fun things. You, you, I mean, the classic thing was the um, little statuettes uh, of the you know, the most famous artworks. So, and funnily enough, you can sort of get those still today. Uh, but there'd be like plates or uh, little rings that would be embedded with like the, the image of Zeus, um, you know, Phidias as Zeus. Uh, but you could also buy um, wacky things like uh, you know, people would come and sell love potions um you know handy things like that which you know, if you're going off to the to the fuck factories i guess uh, but it was uh uh and that would be the, the most famous recipe we have was um it was horses sweat and lizard flesh Good mixed grief. together yeah and plenty of the elder actually said uh, to make someone fall in love with you you would actually grind a little bit of your own feces into um the other the other person's uh meal just to, and that was apparently um incredibly um incredibly powerful Viagra, it is not. I guess that's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so before we get to the the specifics of the sports, I want to zoom out a little bit because athletics are sort of famously, historically, uh, a peaceful right 
in the ancient world. Um, and of course, you mentioned that Aristotle was a fan of wrestling. I, I think back to the, the old epic of Gilgamesh, and one of the key events in that is when Enkidu comes to Gilgamesh's city and they wrestle, and they end up becoming friends, right? So these two people who, who could become enemies end up befriending each other after a wrestling match. With Gil, Gil, Gilgamesh wins, but he, he respects Enkidu afterwards, and they, they become lifelong friends. Um, sort of this ritualized violence, I guess, that takes the place of violence. Um, so I'm wondering, why was this something that happened in Greece and not in, not famously in Britain or India or China? What was it about Greece that made it prime for these ancient games? I think there's two things. One is this sort of incredible admiration for the human form, which you see in Greek sculpture. You know, this is this, especially the male form. Um, and the other one is this incredible competitiveness. They were actually kind of insanely competitive. There was like each city state was it was always they were always fighting amongst one one another. But even within the city states, they would you know they would argue. They would like have they have beauty competitions. There was there was a, a kissing competition which was between young boys. But uh, there would be um, you know eating competitions. There's everyone's they you know they're just competing about everything and uh, extremely uncooperative bunch. Uh, and thus Greek history is sort of this anarchic thing. And so the Olympic Games has this sort of strangely magical quality in that they have uh, the sacred truce where all wars have to stop basically for two weeks beforehand, two weeks after to allow people to walk basically to and from the games in safety. Now, it didn't always work. Sometimes it would screw up. Um, you know, if, and Sparta got you know, barred from the games during the, um, the Peloponnesian Wars, for example, for a year. Um, politics would creep in. And the, the most extravagant case was when some, a, a group called the Pisans decided to take over running the, um, uh, running the games and the Aeleans, was, you know, who usually did it, got so enraged that they, inv- they got an army together and invaded the Olympic Games during a wrestling match. And so this pitched battle started between the Pisans and the Aeleans. And the, um, the, the, the sports fans, to their credit, just got up on top of the temples and started watching and sort of applauding. So who's, <laughs> who was winning and who's doing, doing what? Uh, and the Aeleans won and uh, they, got the, they got the games back. But uh, um, a lot of the vices that we associate with the Olympic Games were there um, right at the beginning. Well, we think of America as a fairly competitive culture, but in your book you talk about how there was, you know, competitions among surgeons, and that weddings and funerals had races, and the, on military excursions they would bring sporting equipment. So, just how deep was this sense of competitiveness in Greek culture? Oh, it was extreme. It was just very sort of, and even the athletes, you know, they didn't even. They, they they turned up as individuals. They um they didn't you know they were very proud to come from Athens, just from Sparta or whatever, and those cities were proud of them. But they didn't go in teams. In fact, there were no team sports at all. They were all individual competitions. That you know, uh, you know and so even calling them sports is is, a, is technically incorrect. It's sort of an athletic competition because they they they, they compete in, uh, as individuals. Um and indeed the um. You know, the sports was part of every social occasion. And in Homer, uh, there's, um, there's a, probably one of the most amazing descriptions of um, uh, in, you know, sports in literature, uh, athletics in literature, is uh, the funeral games that uh, Achilles holds after uh, his friend is killed. And um, that gives some of the most, you know, vivid and extraordinary descriptions of uh, ancient, uh, ancient athletics. 
Now let's let's transition into the actual the athletic aspect of this uh, because I thought it was interesting. They don't march as teams. Uh, sometimes they could even sell their loyalty to another city. There were eighteen events. Some of them are familiar, like running and wrestling and boxing, uh, and discus and javelin. Um, but there are also things like chariot races and and sprints in full armor. So, what was the sporting aspect of the games like? Uh, well, I think it was very spectacular, uh, but. Again, to sort of dissociate it, it was a five-day event, but you know the, the 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 religious element and the social element took up as much as the the actual sports. For example, the, the first day, everyone's hanging around, um, swearing on an oath, uh, swearing an oath on a slice of boar's meat that they'd not used magic to enhance their performances. So this this you know the sort of the signing in as the first day, huh. and then uh, the second day uh, is basically de- devoted to the long jump. Uh, which is part of the pentathlon uh, there, but it was performed from a starting position. And uh, you just sort of crouch down and use these leaden hand weights and swing them back and forward and then um, leap into the sand from there uh, to the sound of flute music. So things like that, it would have been something marvellous to watch, but it's it's quite different to uh, what we might uh, imagine today. Well, and then boxing, as I understand it, if if it had sort of come to a draw, that they would um, they would settle the match by just letting each other punch each other without defense until it ended. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a pretty brutal, um, uh, brutal sport, and that was a. I mean, skipping over like day three, you know, everyone sort of got a rest because they're all having a giant feast, uh, with the, you know, slaughter of a hundred oxen. Uh, but on day four, all these sort of these body uh, body contact sports are on, and boxing. Weirdly, is a it's super brutal, and um, they wrap leather thongs around their their fists, and uh, um, body blows were forbidden anyway. But you so you're trying to get the, to the head, and if yeah, if it were going on too long, just whack each other in the head until one of one of them uh, one of them drops. And of course, this ended up, you know, like uh, Apollo may have been the god of boxing, but it's like uh, they were it, it, their face their faces were. You know, basically devastated, uh, and it sort of became legendary. Like one guy, he was an Olympic. He got made from the Olympics. He came home and um, he got cheated out of his inheritance because no one could recognize him. And another one, no one could, no one, no one knew who he was except for the family dog recognized him because he was so beaten up. Jeez. Now, is boxing different from pancreatrion? Did I pronounce that correct? Ah, uh, pancreatrion. I think yeah, pancreatrion. Okay. Um, yeah, that was um, probably the most extreme of them. Uh, I mean, re- they, there was wrestling, which I think we, is probably one of the most recognizable ones. It was, um, again, very, very dangerous because um, no one wanted to give up. They were so competitive mm. that they wouldn't give up. And strangling uh, was not only allowed, it was encouraged because it was uh, one way of making people, like, you know, stop fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but the pancreation was this all-in brawl and, um, where you could do anything except uh, eye gouging. And uh, it, it was probably the most dangerous and the most, most bizarre uh, of, of the of the sports. And maybe uh, it's sort of like Thai kickboxing. You know, that might be the closest thing because they're flailing at each other and just doing almost anything. And it was uh, uh, one of the more exotic uh, sports, I think. Was it like mis- mixed martial arts, maybe? Yeah, that might be that might be a nice close analogy, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one more question about the sports, the chariot races. I mean, obviously, there's no parallel between the chariot races. What were those like? I, they were pretty chaotic and pretty dangerous. Um, you know, there was famously, there'd be, there'd be terrible accidents along the way. And 
uh, in one in one event, I think twenty two chariots started and only one uh, came in um, unscathed. Uh, but it was still very popular and it was very glamorous. You know, they it was a bit like Formula Five. You know, whatever races. You know, um, you know every, it, the. You know, the, because people could invest money, the nobles could invest money in, you know, the, the finest horses, the, um, the, you know, the most beautiful chariots. Uh, like the Emperor Nero, when he came, he wanted to, uh, the chariot race was um, a big one for him. And he, um, he, he actually fell out of his chariot, but was awarded the uh, uh, victory anyway. But, um, and then he added poetry reading to the, uh, to the events as well, which he also won, unsurprisingly. But uh, but yeah, it was it was very spectacular to watch. I think you know in the same way that we like watching you know car car races today because there'll be you know tumbles, there'll be like deaths, people dragged along. I mean Ben Hur, uh, the movie mm. Ben Hur has a marvelous um, recreation of what it was what it was like. Oh, I tell you. In Greece, it was done in a, basically in a giant field. The, the hippodrome was sort of uh, um, more of a field rather than the Circus Maximus. Uh, it was still, you get a sense of how dangerous, and when there were accidents, they were, they were, they were not good. You talk about Nero sort of uh, um, tipping his own hand. Were there unfair athletes? Did people throw fights? Did people um, cheat? Did did, yeah. did did judges, were judges bribed? What what happened with that? Yeah, yeah. No, that, that almost at the you know, very early on, it was like, uh, it was actually 388 BC, a guy named Eupolis of Thessaly um, bribed his uh, competitors to throw the, um, throw the game, uh, the, wrestling, the wrestling match. But he got found out and uh, was, was drummed out. And from then on, uh, you know, you had to make a special, uh, a special oath that you were not, you know, not going to cheat, uh, and that meant, you know, bribery as well as magic and whatever. But um, uh, still, scandals would come up because it was very hard to track, and uh, the, the games were plagued by the, these sorts of disasters. Um, Nero is, a, is an unusual case because, I mean, the Romans conquered Greece, you know, like in, in the second century BC, so they were. They were running the show, but they also revered Greek culture and mm. um, you know and sort of absorbed it uh, into into their own sort of uh, their their own their own um, customs. And so they were very happy that the Olympic Games carried on. And Roman tourists started coming along as well. Uh, as the, the important thing was that you had to be able to speak Greek because uh, the Greeks were very chauvinistic. Uh, even though they hate, they fought amongst themselves like you know, madly. Uh, it was like some dysfunctional family. But it, it, there was a huge, there was a complete difference between the Greeks and the and the barbarians. Everyone who wasn't Greek was a barbarian. So the Romans had to sort of like uh, elide that by sort of by, by becoming very cultured in the Greek uh, in, in Greek traditions, speaking Greek. Um, as you know, Horace said this. There was a famous saying that uh, Greece took captive. It's uh, it's 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 conqueror. Uh, so yeah. so the, so Greek culture was actually spread by the Romans um, all around Europe um, to the frontiers of Scotland to you know to you know the the, the marshes of uh, of Germany. Um, but the, the the Greeks sort of lost out and the, they lost their independence and they couldn't run around killing each other quite as often, which, you know, was disappointing for them, I think. Well, maybe even the mod- the fact that we have the modern Olympics is was sort of um, propelled a bit by the Roman influence on, on Western society today. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, they really uh, 
helped keep it going uh, up until uh, th- you know, 392 AD. And then, uh, you know, it was the Christians, it was a, you know, the Christian emperors took over, and it was as the, as the most important um, uh, pagan rite, mm. pagan, pagan, you know, pagan uh, festival, they finally canned it. And then um, barbarians started, you know, coming around and trashing Olympia, and it just, uh, it just felt a bit, unfortunately. But um, but the tr- knowledge of it kept going, even in the Middle Ages, there would be sort of little, whenever there were like little weird little uh, sporting meets, they'd often called on the Olympics or whatever. It was, it was well, always referred to. Um, and... Uh, but you know, until the 19th century, when Pierre de Coubertin, of course, a French guy, decides to revive them as a way of um, bringing back this idea of the sacred truce, in a way of um, you know, of international solidarity, which was a fantasy, but an appealing one nonetheless. Well, I, I as I recall, the the Olympics started out as a strictly amateur undertaking. And I know that the great uh, Native American athlete Jim Thorpe was robbed of his medal because it found out he was given money for a football game at one point. How did amateurism figure in at all in the ancient games? Not in the, not in the same way. It was basically a misunderstanding um, uh, by, by, uh, in the modern era. And it's, uh, the British in the 19th century, when they started their sort of like you know, pip pip um, in Eton rugby, sort of like in the sportsmanship. Uh, they had this idea of the Greeks that um, that they were amateurs. Uh, and it's tr- the one thing that is true is that there was no cash prizes. Uh, you would just get a you know an olive wreath you know to wear, and it was like well you know and and there'd be a big feast. But uh, you know the um, the city states would uh, pay promising um, athletes to be to be trained. They'd help get them to Olympia. They would, uh, uh, what's more, reward them in extravagant ways when they came back. They could become politicians. They could be, become judges. They would get gifts of houses, you know, mm. olive oil, great vats of olive oil, whatever. So there was sort of like if you were Olympic victor, you were kind of a made man uh, in a sense. Not only would your name be remembered through history, you would, ha- you would have a sweet uh, sweet sailing, as, uh, as Pindar put it, uh, for the rest of your life. Life. And so this, I, they didn't really, you know, they, the Greeks didn't have amateur, the, the amateurism in the same sense. And uh, the British in the 19th century particularly liked it because it was all very much um, aristocrats who were uh, in, the, in the playing fields of Eton and, uh, and rugby. And uh, they wanted to keep the working men out. And so if the, you know, the, and the, the workers, you know, because they were kind of tough, you know, physically tough, uh, they didn't want to be sullied by having to deal with the working classes. So and the workers would, you know, to, to be able to train, to be able to would have to probably, you know, to take money or uh, be subsidized or um, some sort of commercial venture. And, and so in a, in a sort of a very subtle, snide way. Uh, this concept of amateurism was to keep the keep the masses out of the uh, of of the Olympic Games, and uh, Pierre de Coubertin was a you know was a, a, a French nobleman who really admired the uh, the British because um, the French had been whipped by the Prussians in the Franco-Prussian War. The, the French manhood was obviously he decided kind of feeble, and the reason that the British were doing so well running the empire was because they had this sort of sporting tradition. So he sort of latched onto that. Um, but the whole distinction between professionalism and uh, amateurism is it, it is kind of bizarre because it meant that you know, poor old Thorpe, you know, like back in you know when he was you know in, in his misspent youth, took some money, whereas the aristocrats never had to uh, uh. you know sully themselves with uh, filthy filthy lucre. 
Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's easy to forget that that came out of uh, wealthy people who didn't want to uh, compete with the hoi polloi. Um, what was it like in the ancient games as far as aristocrats versus common men? Because you mentioned that the first uh, champion in the Olympics was a cook, which is a pretty working class profession, whereas the chariot races were often aristocrats. How did that split work? Um, yeah, I mean, the chariot races were sort of had this built in sort of uh, financial threshold. So that was somewhat different. Uh, and you would you would read about um, aristocrats like Alcibiades in uh, in Athens, saying that he didn't want to um, you know have to wrestle with a you know a barber or something. But uh, but the reality was uh, Athens you know, the gymnasium was inherently kind of a um, quite a democratic place because you would go in every you know, every, every um, young male would go in for physical training, uh, all naked, all sort of like there. Uh, so it's sort of it, it just had a natural democratic process that, uh, and and people overall didn't mind if a if a cook or a you know uh, or, or a, a hairdresser or a uh, or a fisherman was able to uh, you know to rise up through the ranks that way, and it was sort of a, a great engine of social mobility. And I sort of liken it to like you know uh, soccer in you know the the working class areas of, of Britain, you know, yeah. or um, basketball in, uh, you know, in the Bronx, you know, if you, if you become good at it, you know, it's, it, you will rise to the top and it's a way of getting out, you know, changing your life and becoming, you know, a part of a, a totally different social class. So that's, uh, that's one thing that I think is kind of, uh, kind of appealing that the Greeks were like, you know, if, if the gods had blessed you with um, this physical prowess, you know who 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 are we to, to to keep you out of the games? And everybody was naked, so you couldn't really tell who who was uh, rich by their clothing, right? So. Exactly, exactly. So uh, um, who knows? Maybe their haircuts, but uh. <laughs> right. Now, um, what kind of training and diet went into um, the the competition? I mean, were there certain foods or, or regimens that went into training for these events? Yeah, well, there were professional coaches, and you know, in in each of the cities, and they sort of became famous. As I mean, the sports, the the, the festivals were a huge deal, and people would travel around. You know, just you spend your whole life going from one to the next around the Greek world if you if you wanted to. So you would get these sort of athletes who would just like on, on go on tour uh, around, and they would have the, their coaches, and the coaches did think about food because obviously they knew, you know, something, you know, what you ate. You know, would have a huge influence on your on your on your training regimen. But it was is just as wacky as today. You know, they would, they would discuss you know what what fish should you eat? Is it should it you know, from the sea or the lakes? Uh, what seaweed? Which one's going to be better? Um, and they would come up with sort of fad diets. One guy suggested a diet of all pork, hmm. you know, nothing but pork. And another one was uh, all figs. All figs, which must have must have done healthy to digestion, but uh, but eventually they probably would have figured out that just uh, you know they, they mostly did figure out like much like today that just a good balanced diet is is not a bad way to go. Are there any great um, Olympians that are still remembered or that were recorded? Like, is there a Michael Phelps of the ancient world? Uh, yeah, I mean, all their names are there. We don't really. Um, think of them today I, I, I springs to mind milos of croton was one guy he was like the most famous wrestler because he would turn up carrying a um a cow on his shoulders and he um 
uh, it was known for great acts of prayer, like tearing tearing down trees. But he also wasn't, you know, terribly bright. And uh, he ended up going back to his life as a shepherd. And to prove how strong he was, uh, there was a tree that had a sort of a wedge in it, and he sort of was going to remove the wedge. But he got his hand caught, and the tree sort of closed up, and he got his hand stuck. And then he was devoured by wolves that night. So uh, something of a uh, ignoble end uh, to, uh, to him. But, but most of the names, you know, um, they're, they're sort of, uh, you know, they would, they would be remembered um, in the ancient world, but they don't, um, you know, and there'd be little statues of them uh, all over Olympia. So they were sort of became part of history. But tragically, um, they're, they're not uh, household names today. Well, Milo's life sounds almost like a TV movie, you know, coming to the competition with a cow on your shoulders and then and meeting your end at the at the mouth of a wolf. Yes, yes. No, it's uh, and I think it was told as a sort of a parable of, um, as Homer said, he who he who lives by his strength will also die by his strength, hmm. uh, and sort of like you know just <laughs> uh, think things through maybe to try to show off too much. Uh, of course, you know, the Greeks never paid attention to that. But, you know, the, uh, like most parables, it's sort of um, – it's a nice idea. Did non-Greeks think this was weird? Yeah. I mean, the rest of the world was like, what? You know, uh, I mean, the Romans were one over because they loved all things Greek. But they like the Persians, for example, who the Greeks regarded as total barbarians, would come and uh, – uh, and in fact, uh, one one uh, one writer, Lucian, has a whole has a marvelous little satire where he's showing around a barbarian around the uh, around the gymnasium and sort of explaining the Greek sporting culture. And the barbarian thinks they're crazy. I mean, you know, they're all running around naked. They're taking it so seriously. And he's like, and hang on, you 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 all go and you just like to watch this. You like to watch sports. And it's like, what you know, it seems frivolous and pointless. Uh, to the rest of the rest of the world, the sort of um, the superficiality of it, the amount of time and energy um, put into it, and the amount of um, and the sheer seriousness of it all uh, did seem deeply odd. But it was part of Greek culture, you know, the gymnasium, you know, that's where school classes, you know, classes were held as well. It was part of, you know, the balanced mind and body and the, the physical the aesthetics and you know that's where artists would go to study the human form it was all mixed in together for the greeks it wasn't uh, you couldn't separate it now uh there's the famous battle of, of peloponnese uh and as i think maybe that inspired the movie 300 this is where we hold them this is where we fight this is where they die and the shield boys! Oh! Thermopylae, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but was the reason there were so few Greek defenders because all the other Greeks were away at a wrestling match? Apparently so. It was, um, uh, and, and Xerxes was just astonished uh, that there's, there's only 300 of you guys. And he, and he learned later, you know, that, that they were all hanging around throwing the discus and whatever in uh, uh, hundreds of miles away. It seemed, um, deeply uh strange and um and it was it was but you know who knows i mean for the greeks that sort of homage to zeus you know maybe that sort of um got their morale up to actually uh beat the persians later um you know they it was so part of their culture to not do it would would have been you know an insult to insult to the gods and because the gods 
took as much interest in the games and the results as as humans. Uh, you know, they're all like sitting around on Mount Olympus observing what was happening, and uh, to to not do that was um, just unthinkable. Now, you talk about it's, it was a big deal. It was an insult uh, to the gods to not take part in this. Yet there were some Greek skeptics, uh, most notably Diogenes. Yeah, yeah. He's one of the rare naysayers who would wander around uh, denouncing the games. Because he, went, he would go to the games and sort of like spout off about them and uh, um, make himself very unpopular. And um, he, was, he was a strange character who would sometimes stand up. And, and start masturbating on a, on a pedestal or whatever <laughs> but, uh, you know, to make a, an obscure philosophical point. Uh, I mean, the, the men overrate sex, I think, it was, it was the point. So he stands, um, I, guess, I get too obsessed with sex. So, uh, uh, yeah, he, he was quite a naysayer. And um, some of his protests were kind of obscure because, like, Hercules being, you know, a huge hero for, uh, for the athletes, um, he said, like, one of – one of his tasks was to, to, to clean the Augean stables. Uh, so he just sat down and did a giant turd in the, um, you know, in the, on, the, in the, on the running track. Diogenes so, did. Yeah, so like, you know, just uh, clean that up and you can emulate Hercules. So he, it's a very striking, um, it's more like performance art than anything else. Now, did he, did he not like take a wreath from a champion and say, look, you may have won a race, but I'm the champion of life? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there was, you know, a, a critique that, I mean, he you know, did did think that it, people putting too much effort into the superficial, physical side of uh, of life. You know, what about philosophers? What about, you know, artists who are thinking about the great issues, um, life and death and uh, um, the spirit? Um, so it was a it was a valid criticism. You know that it's all very well to be into your sports, but there's there's more to life than that. And uh, but he was very much in the minority, and uh, he was sort of considered just a, a crank, really. He's sort of a nonconformist, I guess. Yeah, yeah, a refusenik. Right. Yeah. So uh, all these years later, does the modern Olympics resemble at all the ancient Olympics, or is it sort of a different monster? Uh, it's a quite different thing. It's like I mean, sports is now removed from our religious lives you know for you know it's, it's sort of like it's its own self-contained thing even though the passions can be extreme it's sort of like it's not you know it's not a um, it's not as embedded in our lives it's you know uh uh so that is is quite something i mean if you know I, you know the tokyo ones are obviously going to be quite different but if you look at the ones in rio or the you know for you know, to take an example that was kind of like a you know, uh, orgiastic sort of free for all. The whole city is sort of devoted to, um, you know, this event, and everyone's like running around partying, and you know, the athletes are running around, and it's like the Olympic Village is sort of they're handing out dozens of condoms a day. You know, just uh, keep, they're running out of them, and so it becomes it's this sort of like wild, festive scene. So you can sort of get a sense of it, but it just doesn't have that sort of um, spiritual level that it that it used to, and uh, and some of the connections to the ancient world are very spurious like the everyone loves the um the olympic torch which people assume was you know done in um you know in the, in the ancient greek times but it, it wasn't at all it was actually invented by the uh by the nazis in 1936 Jeez. uh you know for Len lenny riefenstahl uh to do this movie olympia they all sort of came together like what what can we do to get this sort of greek aryan connection going so they come up with the idea of running you know from lighting the torch uh in olympia and like running all the way back uh, and it became hugely popular 
um, sort of, and you know, and the next two were cancelled because of the Second World War. And so they thought, oh, you know, let's, let, it's such a great idea. You know, why not, why not do it? Uh, so it's become this inc- extremely popular, uh, you know, running around the world. It's, it's like a PR thing. It's kind of amazing. Um, but that is a is a fantasy, uh, like so many of our ideas of the ancient world, really. Well, you know, the modern Olympics have famously ended with the marathon, but was the marathon a part of the ancient games? No, they. Uh, that was uh, Pierre de Coubertin came up with that because uh, he, the first of the modern games was in 1896 in Athens, and he was like, you know, what are we, what are we going to do? Um, uh, and there was a, there was a Battle of Marathon was this famous uh, naval battle, and the Greeks won against incredible odds. And so this uh, an Athenian runner uh, had the news, and he went 20, you know, 23 miles back to Athens, blurts out the news that we won, and then drops dead. And it sort of became this famous sort of thing. So, so Kubotan thought, well, we'll do a race basically that same length um, to see that we can still do that. And, uh, and it, so it became a, a fixture and they called it the marathon, you know, just as an homage to the, um, to the um, ancient battle. But um, yeah, another, you know, it's, it's, it's got sort of roots in the ancient Greek world, but it's uh, a different concoction. The, the, the Greeks had three um, running running races, like a 200 meter, a uh, 400 meter, and another one that was a round track that went for about 3,000 meters. But uh, nothing like a, uh, a epic, um, sweaty, all day extravaganza. Are those running races probably the most similar or wrestling? What is there any sports that resembles its ancient form in the modern Olympics? I mean the sprints definitely. I mean you know that's there's not much you can do with that. You know they had a um, they had a you know one one length was like 210 meters of the uh, of the track, and which you can still run. In fact, if you go to Olympia, it's like they they executed the the starting line, the marble starting line. So it's kind of a fun thing to do, especially if you go early in the morning um, when there's no one there. You know you can sort of get there and. In fact, if you wanted to, you could do it naked, probably. <laughs> but <it was laughs> stripped down. I did not do that for the book, uh, much to my shame. But I went there and I ran. You know, you, you can sort of crouch there, and they had a sort of a starting gate um, that the judges would pull down, and then you know you'd you'd be uh, off, sort of like a horse's starting gate, really. But you would do one. You know, if you just did one lap, you know, it was a sprint. That's pretty much, you know, not that different to what it is today. Um, so that and the wrestling, I mean, the wrestling was much more violent. Um, you know, you could really hurt people because, um, you know, the judges didn't only called it, you know, really when the other person, when someone gave up, you know, uh, so you'd have to sort of tap, you know, give the tap. But if it, they were so competitive that often people would rather die than, um, than, uh, be defeated because if you were, there were no second, there were no second places. There were no, there's only, you know, there's you only got the laurel wreath or nothing. You know, there were no like silver medals or bronze medals. If you came second, you were just mocked, uh, just as much as if you were, um, you know, game in last. So, and like then the winners would be very proudly, you know, strut around and there was no sense of this sort of English thing of like, you know, fair play or whatever it's just sort of like you know or sort of like gentlemanly conduct you know if you won it's like you know fuck everybody you know it's like you would uh, mock them and uh, you know laugh at them and the and the losers would skulk back by you know uh, by back roads to their home cities whereas the you know the the victors would be in their chariots going along with you know dancing girls and the whole bit so, uh, so there's uh, no sportsmanship so- in the modern sense of the word 
Not in that sense. That was a very British um, sort of they call but you know, like a very you know that, that ruling class schools, uh, public school sort of thing there. That uh, um, was all you know, and they're all because they they became sort of you know the, in the British Empire they became very they, they became very much enamoured of Greek culture, and um, so this idea like this sort of fantasy idealization and uh, was sort of crept in. Based on what you know about the ancient games, are there any sports that you think could be um, reinserted into the modern games, or are they all left best left to history apart from wrestling and running? Um, interesting. Uh, I mean, like even the discus had to be um, revived, and you know, in the, in the Victorian age, because no one had thrown a discus, you know, for fifteen hundred years, and so they were like they they had to sort of just you know they had excavated uh, some discuses in. Um, you know, in Greece, and they were like, you know, well, make one sort of like that. And the funny thing was that all the discuses in different games were different sizes. So, you know, there was no, they didn't have records in the sense of that we have, you know, like to measure because there was a different, you know, there were different weights, there were different shapes or whatever. So, uh, uh, so that's kind of like a wacky thing that did get reinstated. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure, um, I mean, karate is being introduced for the first time, uh, uh, this year I did a story for Smithsonian that's just out, out now. So Tokyo, you know, um, that's, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the Pankration, you know, is, is right. like, uh, uh, but but it's very, very different because karate, they had to actually come up with, you know, special, special rules to make sure there's no injuries, there's, uh, uh, to make it safe for everyone and, and sort of um, regularize it because there's many different schools of karate and uh um, and it's quite, a, kind of, I found it kind of interesting researching it because the, um, in the Asian athletic tradition it's like it's very martial arts it's very um it's not really sports competitive sports in the sense that europeans have it's more it was more um you, you know like you do karate to, to comp- you compete with yourself uh your self-improvement you know the tournaments were only really like brought in in the 1920s and you know uh yeah. as as european influence you know really came through and they had to come up with rules and who won and whatever and, and karate you know it used to be you're just doing uh, a lot of it was kata, which is this sort of like dance-like moves, and you would be judged on these sort of in, in endless repetitions of uh, of these dance-like moves, and, they, and you know, and you and you improved against yourself. You didn't, you know, and you you always respect your your partner. You're always bowing. You don't. You never gloat in you know in even now in victory you know in in, in tournaments so uh it's a very different tradition you know it's like going around punching you know the air or you know like if you, you know after you get a soccer goal or whatever you know they do a tour of the running around or uh or in basketball no one's leaping up congratulating you just sort of like very quietly you know uh acknowledge the other person so it's 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 kind of there, there are certain karate you know aficionados who think it's a mistake hmm. um to you know that it'll destroy something in karate to um have it this high profile to, to glorify the competitions this much so it's like they're reverse engineering an asian sport with greek competitiveness yes yes it's very uh yeah you know, you know history has weird cycles and um you know, and things things are developing. So you know, it's all um, evolution, I guess. Now, um, Olympics sort of are situated with a revived tourist or travel interest in various parts of the world as they go from place to place. Is it still possible to go to the old sites of the ancient Greek Olympics and get something 
substantial as a travel experience or are the vestiges of the games mostly gone? Oh, no, it's pretty good, actually. Um, I mean, I went, remember going there. Well, the first time I went, I was like, I just was bouncing around different ones and I didn't really pay. I was doing this book, um, Pagan Holiday, about ancient Roman and Greek travelers. And I was, it was just one of many places. And I thought, oh, that's, that's pretty nice. It's kind of amazing to see the stadium and whatever. And then I sort of did more research on it. And I realized that it actually hadn't changed that much. And so when I went back, I was like, oh, wow. It's actually like the hills you know, where all the spectators stood are still basically the same. And you, you could figure out, oh, you would go from here to there when that event is on and that event is on. Uh, one of the, the sad thing is that, um, like, the Temple of Zeus and all the great sort of shrines, they've all been knocked down. So that's sort of a lot of the Greek ruins there can feel a little, little bit like rubble. It's hard to sort of reimagine how amazing it must have been to go in and see this enormous ivory and gold image of uh, Zeus that struck people dumb, hmm. made people weep, you know, and like turn in fear and whatever, and uh, um, you get this sense of the majesty of Zeus. Um, and as well as to see all these marvelous, you know, like hides that they thought was, you know, like, you know from, from monsters, you know, in the, you know, in Greek legend and whatever, and dinosaur bones and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it would have a, have a very magical sort of feel. Uh, but, you, you know, you can get a sense of how it was all laid out and how the festival worked. The, you know, the river Alpheus has sort of changed course a little bit, but you get a sense of, you know, um, and if, especially if you go in summer and it's like it's, it's hot, you know, and it's like you realise that this is, if you're standing, it's like the Woodstock of antiquity. That's what I compare it to. It's like 40,000 people, mostly guys, standing around, you know, thirsty, you know, hungover, drinking, whatever. And it's like there's, there's no sanitation. They're just, you know, the, the river Alphys is basically used as an open air latrine. There's stenches, of, you know, sweeping across the site. Flies everywhere. Um, in fact, there was a shrine uh, to one version of Zeus called Zeus the Averter of Flies to try and keep the infestations down. Uh, people would make sacrifices, but it, so it was a really sort of like unhygienic and sort of squalid little uh, experience, and yet also in, an incredible spectacle. And, and it was you, you considered, you know, you, you had to go to the Olympic Games at least once in your life. And it was sort of like a metaphor for life itself. You know, one philosopher, Epictetus, was like, you know, yes, it's, it's, it's incre incredibly unpleasant. It's incredibly hot. If you're hungry, you're thirsty, you're like, you're itchy. And it's like, you know, it, you know, the crowds are driving you nuts. But you still do it because it's an unforgettable experience. It's kind of like, it's a once in a lifetime thing. And it's like, you know, you, and it's, it's a metaphor for life. You know, there's a lot of annoying things in life. You know, there's like, you know, things that are going to drive you nuts. But it's not like you're you know, going to trade it in. You just have to realize that it's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary thing and sort of take the rest of it as this part of the package. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Tony Parate's book, The Naked Olympics, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm -hmm.